Watershed legend Paula Winokur was a beloved teacher and ceramic artist whose late work opens our eyes to the otherworldliness and evanescence of glaciers and sea ice and to the rugged beauty of rock cliffs and landscapes. While some of her sculptures, such as five-inch globes of smooth porcelain with rough patches inlaid with rusty oxides and icy blue glazes, which Paula called global warnings, are small enough to pick up in two hands. Many are enormous, such as Palisades Pinnacle, which she created for Wave Hill in New York. This breathtaking sculpture is almost 10 feet tall, and it evokes a rock cliff in the Palisades. Paula built the work with huge angular boxes of textured porcelain that she fit together like a colossal three-dimensional puzzle. Paula Winokur taught at Beaver College, now Arcadia University, for many years, and she and her husband Robert Winokur, also a ceramic artist and teacher, lived outside of Philadelphia for more than 50 years, where they had their studios and kilns. When Watershed Executive Director Fran Rudolph and I visited Paula and Bob in December of 2016, we thought it was just to plan out our next visit. But I took out my recorder anyway, because that's what I always do, and I'm so glad I did. Tragically, we never had the chance to return for a deeper interview. Paula had a major operation a few weeks later and never fully recovered. I am so sad to say that Paula Winokur died in the early winter of 2018. We'll have the chance to hear a little bit from Paula from that visit. And later I'll talk with ceramic artist Nancy Selvin and Clay Studio Philadelphia curator Jennifer Zwilling. They'll give us their perspectives on Paula as an artist, a teacher, and a friend. That afternoon in 2016, when Fran and I visited, Paula had set the table for lunch with her textured porcelain plates, and they looked so lovely against an indigo tablecloth. But before we sat down, I asked if we could visit the small gallery that connected their home to their studios to see some of Paula's work. On one wall was a collection of porcelain sculptures, each almost three feet in length. They looked like tubes with pointed ends, smooth and textured surfaces inlaid with rusty oxides and beautiful blue glazes. This one talks about drilling ice cores, which is how they figure out when the melts were, at what, what century even. I find it all, all that scientific stuff really fascinating. And to be able to find it fascinating and then express it in a way that is artistically fascinating, that's, that's the... One would hope. Genius, yeah. And here you, you tell the story, too, well. As well. yeah, this is, this is about drilling ice cores, and of course it's very abstract. They, they can dig them down 3,000 feet or 3,000 meters, I'm not sure which article I read, but they go way down, and so this is supposed to, these are supposed to represent the amount of carbon that they found when they went down. And then they also touch it, which in some cases, where they were dug, the ice cores, because they dig them in Antarctica, they dig them in the Arctic, you know, they 
They have sites all over, wherever it's really, really cold. Did you make these with slabs? It's a, it's a slab of clay that was rolled around a tube, a cardboard tube. Um, so this part would have been made separately, and then I would put this on, and then put this in, and then put that on. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, so that the, the textured piece you made separately. Yeah. And then the... the and it all kind of fits together. Mm -hmm. I think everybody figures out ways to to work, you know. To take what's in your head. Yeah, and it's often not easy. <laughs> well, that's when I've seen you. I've never seen your work in person. I've only seen it online. And the texture was the part that really grabbed me. Huh. As when I saw the piece that you did at Wave Hill, the textures of those yeah, just looked. That piece is in St. Petersburg mm. forever. <laughs> and these also, and it is that, that combination of the smooth and the textured. It's my thing, I guess. <laughs> and maybe why those, those icebergs spoke to you so much, yeah, too. Yeah, I mean, it was just I, photographs of them. It was just really extraordinary and huge, you know, huge, gigantic. And the other thing is, and that's what these are about, there's one-third above the water and two-thirds below the water. Mm -hmm. So that's what this is supposed, supposed to be, the water. And you look at these gigantic bergs out there in the bay, and a lot of them are grounded. They, they can't move because they're actually down in the dirt. Under the water. Yeah, under the water. Paula took several trips to Greenland and Iceland, and her photographs of sea ice and glaciers were tacked up all over the walls of her studio. Isn't that fabulous? God, that's gorgeous. And you know what? Um, we were on this little boat, and this guy got on, and he had been shooting, waiting for the glacier to calve. And uh, he said the best pictures are to get, get to the back of the boat. So I went to the back of the boat and got this one. Wow. But look at that blue one there, isn't that yeah. gorgeous? It's unworldly. It's, yeah, it's otherworldly. Um, these are some other ones. They're not, these aren't even actually the very best. I have tons of slides. Mm. And put this one, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. The striations, and this is, Looking down at the glacier, I, I went up in a little six-seater plane with the most adorable Danish guy. <laughs> he was so cute. Um, I said, I have to sit up front so I can photograph. And he said, um, well, if nobody else wants the seat, you can have it. So I got the seat. Mm. And this is the mm. front of the glacier. Mm. And this is all the sea ice that comes off. And this is much bigger than it looks here. Wow. Oh, look at that. Yeah. And that's Ariel from the airplane. My gosh. And look at that one. Looks like a ship. Yeah. Yeah. The giant. I like this one too. Mm -hmm. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that texture. I was sitting in the water, I mean, in the boat in the water, saying, look at that, it looks just like porcelain. <laughs> <laughs> Had you known when you took this trip that 
you were interested in yeah. ice, that this yeah. was something that no, I went, really intrigued you. Yeah, I went. we had been to Alaska, and then we went to, Bob and I went to Iceland. And I had a friend who lives in Iceland, and she's Icelandic. <laughs> and um, the glaciers and, and everything is different there. There's a huge glacier that comes down from the mountain. I don't know if it's a picture of it someplace. Well, it doesn't matter. And goes right down into the sea, practically. And there's all this black sand from the volcanoes. Very different. Greenland. Is it the bay, and it was Alula sets the name of the town and the name of the bay. The, this glacier, this particular glacier, is calving, and all of its ice, you know, big chunks come off and float, and they float up to Disco Bay. It's just so much information, you know, and so much beauty. I mean, I keep coming back to that word partly. Yeah. You're finding it in all of this. I mean, it's not hard. It doesn't look like it's hard to find not in this there, landscape. No. Um, I mean, it was an interesting experience, too, because there are people who live there. They live... Greenland is huge. I mean, it's a huge island. But the only part that's inhabited is right around the perimeter. So in Alula said there, there are uh, people living in the town, which is you know, pretty depressing-looking little town. And um, they mostly were making their living from killing se seals and selling the pelts and everything. Since the ice is melting so fast now, there's no place for the seals. So they're losing that. So climate change really is happening, you know, despite the idiots who say it's not happening. And so you could see it there. Anyway, I would go back in a minute if I could. One day, maybe. Maybe. But on the other hand, there's other places to go. You know, yeah. Besides back to the ice. But it was a great experience and gave me a lot of information. So now the big question is, you know, what do I do next? What a gift to hear an artist in her 80s thinking about what to do next. Paula Winokur's drive to continue to work and create was immense. How sad that she did not have the opportunity and we don't have the chance to see what she might have made next. But the work that we still have, that Paula completed near the end of her life, helps us feel the magnificent power of the ice and the fragility of the ecosystem in which it's embedded. In her artist's statement on her website, where you can see many of her beautiful works, old and new, Paula wrote, My work has been influenced by information gathered at various sites, places in the natural environment that I've responded to visually. The earth itself, particularly cliffs, ledges, crevices and canyons. The effects of wind, earthquake, glaciers and natural phenomenon such as geological shifts and faults interest me. It is not my intention to create literal images of what I remember, but rather to present to the viewer the ideas lurking in my memory. Paula Winokur began working with Clay in college at Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia. That's also where she met Robert, who joined us as Paula talked about her work. My works went through making stoneware, you know, traditional pottery, 
And then in 1973, Bob went to Ensica and came back with the porcelain formula. Porcelain was always something that you didn't want to deal with because it was too hard. But then they found Grolig clay in England and Fer was it Ferguson who? Who's the Mackenzie? Okay, yeah, Mackenzie. I thought it was the Mackenzie Ferguson clay yeah. body that that had pretty much fifty or sixty percent Grolig with feldspar and you know whatever in it. And um, so we got some of that. We ordered the Grolig clay from Canada. We both started working in it. Bob worked in it for a little while and said, this stuff is not for me. <laughs> so he gave it up and I stayed with it. And it was really good because we kind of made a big separation between us then. Where this was, porcelain was mine and salt glazing was his. And we weren't stepping on anybody's toes, you know. Which doesn't sound important, but it, you know, is two artists living together and working together yeah it's complicated it can be very complicated matter of identity yeah i find it interesting to think about this matter of identity and the idea of you know because you met when you were in college right yeah we were children a small scandal <laughs> it wasn't a scandal no, I just, you're I was, making that <laughs> making it more dramatic just for a, the radio putting a little spice in the soup <laughs> But you were both, I would guess, were you both sort of figuring out who you were as artists? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. The things I made when I was in that greenhouse, which was the first ceramic studio at Tyler that I ever worked in, had dancing girls on them. Pictures with, with dancing girls, and it was all very much uh, female-related stuff. Uh, do you feel like this work has feminine energy in it too in yeah, a different way yeah I was just way. thinking when I said that thinking about it probably but on the other hand I don't think of myself as being particularly feminist you know I just figure this is what I do I think there's an energy in some of it you know some is better than others as everybody's work is no, I think it's it's just all kind of the, the the texture captivated me, I guess. So it's a question of how what do I do now that I have this lovely surface that I really like? How do I utilize that? And I guess that initially it was rocks and there are some lying around here someplace. But um then the ice really has become a major Thing. And then the whole idea of the climate changing began to become um, important to me. You know, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could do it more effectively than than I have been. Effective in what way? So that it would really speak to the audience. You know. Right. Would you rather be an artist or a propagandist? I mean, you have a message. Not always. Well, you don't, because you're always challenging me that way, but I think an artist can do both. One of the great pleasures of visiting Paula Winokur and her husband Bob at their home and studio was getting to listen in on these kinds of moments, where their long time together as artists, as husband and wife, came vividly to life. 
it was so clear that they admired and appreciated each other's creativity, and that they also teased and prodded each other to think more deeply about their work. While it breaks our hearts that Paula herself is no longer here, her work continues to be shown around the world with tremendous impact. In the summer of 2018, I had the chance to speak about Paula with her dear friend Nancy Selvin, who is an artist and is senior adjunct professor at California College of the Arts, and also with Clay Studio Philadelphia curator Jennifer Zwilling. Jennifer told me that Paula was one of the first artists she thought of as she was planning a new show for which she borrowed one of Paula's wall pieces. And that's um, a wall full of spheres that are these ice spheres with sometimes writing on them that indicate um, depth. They're related to the ice cores project and um, the show in the fall is going to be it's called Making a Difference Social and Political Activism in Ceramic Art which I think is she is absolutely someone at the forefront who she has been doing this work for decades um, before other people I think um, were turning their ceramic mind to these issues um, one of the things, even in my brief experience with both of them, but especially with Paula, was this real sense of her as an educator, not in a didactic way, but in an enthusiastic, here's how I do this, here's how you might try. Do either of you have memories of a particular moment of watching Paula teach? Well, we've taught... A not taught specifically, but done workshops side by side. And um, she really loved teaching and she loved the students. And um, her enthusiasm is just so enormous. You know, she was there at Acadia, you know, just the only professor, and she had to do everything herself. Well, you, you can't do all that work, it's just crazy. So she had her students do it. And the immersive nature of her teaching and how she encouraged her students just to be involved, to fire the kilns, to do, you know, all the heavy lifting was the best thing you can give to them. They, they just, this is what it is. This is what you learn to do. And that's how she taught. I didn't get a chance to see her teaching ceramics, but my experience with Paula as a teacher mentor was more um, as a woman in the arts. So not only was she very generous talking about her experiences and those around her and her teacher, Rudy Staffel, and as an art historian, oral history of the 50s, 60s, 70s um, is really important and, and gener um, generous and allows me, I think, to do my job better. So she was teaching me that history, but she also um, talked to me about being a mother while she was a working artist and teacher and having a husband in the field with her and how they made their lives together and how they could make that work. And a story that she told me was about her experience at Arcadia, then Beaver College, in the 1970s after she had her kids, um, well, before and after, being a part-time professor and then being told that she was not going to be considered as a full-time because she had kids. She was a woman with children and that that wasn't something they were going to do, basically waste the position on someone, 
a woman with children. And she didn't give up. She just continued with whatever they allowed her to do and kept going to the point where she was the full-time, she was the head of the department. Um, and being told by a person you really admire that only 30 or 40 years ago she was told this is another thing that a woman in her 40s as I am I feel it's really important for us to continue to teaching to teach younger women because many of them are now blessedly removed even more from that situation but it really wasn't that long ago um, so that's another to me a way that she can teach and that I believe she will continue to teach through people listening to this wonderful work that you're doing. So. Well, and it sounds like she taught by modeling it, too. I know, Nancy, you have a story about asking her to participate in an exhibition. You know, a long time ago in the 80s, I called her and um, I asked her, I was putting together an exhibition, Women Artists, and she said no, that she didn't want to be associated with only women artists, that she felt it was very important to be, you know, in with everybody, which at that time meant men. You know, there was only two genders in those days. <laughs> um, and that the way you, you know, become powerful and become known is to integrate everybody. And um, that always stayed with me, and I thought about that a lot when the Women's Museum was built in Washington. I had thoughts about, gee, is this what we should be doing? I mean, it's hard to not believe in it and want it to happen, but at the same time, gee, do we want to put women's art in a separate museum instead of in the National Gallery? Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, she was, she was very much um, sort of far, far thinking. She, she wasn't ahead of her time, women were thinking this way, but she, but she was also very kind about it. She wasn't belligerent and she, she wasn't, um, angry. She was never angry. This was just a natural thing. This is the way it should be. And of course I had that same experience and I had almost parallel experiences on the West Coast with this kind of treatment, you know, as an uh, educator uh, in a college. Well, you're married, you don't need a job um, type of attitude. You know, I had experienced it because we're the same generation. And um, and you just persevere, and it was just the way it was, and you just had to keep going. And I think it's that ability to keep going, to keep your head, to do good work. And, you know, we kind of broke through over time. In a contemporary uh, phrase, she persisted, and so did you. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. And thank you for doing that. Yes. I would love to talk about her use of porcelain. Um, and I know she, she wrote about this, about how many of us consider porcelain to be something um, precious and thin and delicate, and her approach was completely different. Can you describe what it was like to watch her work with porcelain? Well, I think it's interesting also in the, her construct with porcelain because she worked, studied with Rudy Stoffel, whose whole concept of porcelain was it was thin and the light came through and it was delicate and fragile. And so Paula went in this completely opposite direction. But when she, she did a demonstration at CCA for us with these, she built these U-shaped forms. And she had this wonderful, again, this comfort, she was very comfortable 
with the clay. So, you know, she had them roll out slabs, the, all the students and other people roll out slabs for her. And they're a nice dimension. They're not too thin, not too thick. And then, you know, she cut these, and so they had to sit, and then she cut the forms, and then she created the structure on the inside, and she put, and it was all, she's just very comfortable kind of throwing it around, putting the, the slabs on top of one another, shaping it, you know, paddling it. She just was very relaxed about handling the material. She didn't, she didn't treat it in any way like it was sort of that sense of valuable, um, you know, it was just another clay body. Um, and it's, you know, of course it's very strong and, and durable once you fire it. I think she took some delight in the idea that she was going against the normal thinking of porcelain and Paula had a wonderful sense of humor and it, it almost felt that she enjoyed the mischievousness of using this material in a way that most people didn't. And really, um, it's funny to use the word groundbreaking with her work because it is literally the ground. <laughs> but there are not really other people who, as early as she was, I don't think, or not many, who were working with porcelain that way. Um, and I think it's important to think about Rudy Stoffel as her teacher who worked with porcelain in such a different way, but gave her that entree to, to, to be comfortable with it, probably. And I think it's also important for us to remember that she was making functional work. She still was making functional work um, all the way throughout her career, but her earlier things were more function-based and they were also porcelain. And if you had gone and you probably did go into that little storeroom behind her studio space and there were just shelves and shelves of plates and cups and the boxes that she used to make um, in the 70s and 80s. and it's so exciting to see that transition from only doing that kind of work and how she started in the boxes. And I think the learning how to do the structure of the boxes led to her knowing how to, as Nancy was saying, structure the interior forms of these new um, shapes that she was making, which are essentially just closed boxes. Um, and that's another teaching moment. That's another thing that we can learn from from looking at her work there are many I've run into quite a few maybe more younger artists who don't want to show their older work they say oh no well this is what I'm doing now so this is good that stuff from two years ago is not good but there is a huge amount of value in watching the progression and seeing that and the fact that Paula saved that work means that again she understood the value which is really insightful. Walking through their home felt like a sense of, uh, you know, first eating off of a porcelain plate that she had made and seeing the markings that she made on her plates and then seeing the beautiful mantles that she created that then had vessels on them and then seeing this, this huge sculptural work it was wonderful to see the continuity as well as the change in what she did. Well, I think that um, that transition between what she was doing very early on and then before she got into the more 
iceberg work, she did a lot of these ledges and still lifes and sort of very abstract table forms. And what we don't think about with the newest work, the work she was doing just before she died, is those those um, transitional pieces were had this beautiful, delicate coloration um, where she was using stains or oxides. I'm not sure what she exactly, but they had little hints of pinks and light blues, and she would use ceramic pencil. So, you know, she played back and forth between that, you know, very a gift of um, delicate, delicate way to handle the tone of the work. It didn't have, the work didn't have to be delicate. That's a really good point, the contrast between the the bit of color and the the lines. Um, and even when you are, look, are looking at one of her monumental pieces that has the cragginess and the structure, you do get a sense of lightness at the same time. It, 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 again, good artwork often has contrasting features and um, things to make the viewer think about the different forces at work. And she wasn't afraid in those large pieces and the pieces that were inspired by um, the monumentality of ice cores or icebergs to play with words and drawings to sort of send our eye in a particular direction so that even though these were strong pieces, there were those, those little hints that kind of pull you in in another way. Well, I think she talks about that, that she wasn't trying to replicate nature. I mean, she's using nature because that's what clay is, and she really just wanted to talk about the ideas behind saving the environment. And, you know, then she put her own thinking and her own touch into the work so that it really was her work. Because one thing ceramics does very easily is you can replicate almost anything if you want to. And so on some level, I think Paula is like, like I am, and there's no point in doing that because the original is really fabulous. So when you want to make something, you want to talk about the ideas that you have about this object or this form or this concern, this environment. I mean, I think that's what she really was expressing and aiming for. One of the things that struck me, even looking at images online, was this contrast between the cragginess, as you said, Jennifer, and the the smoothness, the denseness of porcelain. And when I asked Paula in her studio, how'd you get that texture? She laughed and she said, one day I forgot to put something on my metal table and I threw a piece of porcelain down and when I pulled it up, that's what was there. Part of it had stuck. And it was just this craggy, delicious texture. And I thought that, again, goes to her like, all right, let's do it and let's see what happens. And she was able then to see what happens and use it. Right. I think that's part of her bravery. As you watched her work evolve, Nancy, what do you remember what the response was? Because sometimes for artists it's hard to change because people are expecting you to do the kind of thing that, they all, that you've always done. And I don't know whether that was true for her, um, but I wondered about that because her work, as, as you said, Jennifer, it really evolved from these boxes. She showed me a box in her bedroom 
that I think had like a celadon glaze and it had sort of cherub faces on it and it was very decorative. And you could get caught staying there, um, but she did not. I think if you're a real artist, you just have to move on because you've explored something and you've kind of done what you can and then new things happen in your life. You have kids, you move somewhere, you do something different, you travel, and that changes you. And if you change, your work has to change. So I think it's a natural evolution. I don't think you could be an artist without having that happen. And you just do it. My great thanks to Nancy Selvin and Jennifer Zwilling for sharing their thoughts about their dear friend, the artist Paula Winokur. For her contribution to the field of ceramics, Paula Winokur was honored as a watershed legend in 2017. Paula died in 2018. You can see some of Paula's beautiful work and learn more about her at paulawinokur.com. Conversations with Legends is a production of the Watershed Center for the Ceramic Arts. Find out more about Watershed at watershedceramics.org. This conversation is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. I'm Julie Burstein. Thank you so much for listening.